off in this direction. Okay. All right, so it's recording. All right, so Corey, we're talking about uh, basic practice and Dan and Daniel and I are talking about a little bit more advanced practice, but they move from one to the other. That in fact, if you get the uh, the, the beginner's practice correctly, then it can move to the to the higher level. But one of the things that I have to make mention is is that the second jhana is not going to do anybody any good at all unless we have the first jhana solid. It's it's sort of like building a skyscraper. And by the time you get to the uh, to the 19th floor or something like that, if you don't have a good foundation, it's going to fall over. That we really have to have a solid, solid foundation of the first John. This is why the Buddha actually says uh, in the story of the rose apple tree that why am I afraid of the pleasures of the first jhana? That they're not sensual pleasures, they're mental pleasures. Why, sh why should I be afraid of it? And then the Buddha says that in fact it's the first jhana is the path to enlightenment. That it's only the first jhana. And he, and he made the mistake of going all the way through the fourth jhana in his early practice only to, find, to fall out back into hindrances. And so that's the way that I, uh, if any Westerners do practice well enough that they get themselves into the fourth jhana, the only place they can go from the fourth jhana is back into hindrances because they don't have the first jhana very, very well established. So here's how we establish that first jhana is by taking even the mundane thoughts and changing them into wholesome that you can, in fact we can say that the hindrances the definition of the hindrances is anything that's going to prevent us from feeling the way you want to feel or anything that will prevent you from being on top of the world this is the lokatara or the super mundane that's what uh, uh bhikkhu uh actually achan po had mentioned uh, to, to talk about that this is the super mundane drama because we are going directly into having the feeling of being above it all to be on top of our world. So anything that's going to prevent you from being absolutely on top of your world is a hindrance, including mundane thoughts, because mundane thoughts only take you to the mundane. And so we can change those mundane thoughts to, aha, I see you mundane thought, I see you ordinary thought, aha, and I can do better than that. Okay, and so we actually talk ourselves into, wow, this does feel good, this really is nice. I do actually enjoy this. This is a wonderful breath, wow, I really like this breath. Okay, so all of these thoughts become quite wholesome. Other uh, views of actually wholesome thoughts would be no place to go. I don't have any place to go. Well, I can just sit here and do a whole bunch of nothing because I got nothing to do. I could, you know, just no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows all by itself. This is a very famous Japanese haiku. It's um, uh, Zen in its essence but is actually is the teaching of the Buddha, specifically Anapanasati, is to gladden the mind. So that the gladdening of the mind and the thoughts of the gladdening of the mind is no place to go and nothing to do. And I can just sit here and enjoy being alive, enjoy breathing, can enjoy the sensual inputs that we have and just be here now. So, Mundane thoughts are kind of in the middle. They're not downright unwholesome, but they're not downright wholesome either. The downright unwholesome thoughts would be thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of revenge, 
thoughts of I'm going to get that guy, thoughts of competition. Um, uh, the favorite one that most people have is uh, the last argument that they've had, whoever they argue with. It could be the meditation teacher. It could be uh, a, a friend. I usually use the word Aunt Susie. So here we are sitting on the floor thinking about the argument that we had with Aunt Susie. Oh, I should have told her this. Oh, and I'm going to go tell her that. And you guess, and the, the point is, is that the real Aunt Susie is not here. The real Aunt Susie cannot answer our stupid revenge questions. And so if we then go and have that argument with her, we're going to wind up losing again because Susie's going to say something that we didn't think of. And so we're wasting our time when we argue with her. We're wasting our time when we're thinking about arguing with her. And then we're wasting our time again when we actually go back and argue with her. And we wasted our time in meditation because we were thinking about Aunt Susie rather than thinking about being here now. And yet we can call those thoughts that we're having about Aunt Susie mundane, but they're certainly not um, um, in... Uh, I'm having uh, thoughts of Latin come into my mind, uh, uh, excelling or in excelsis Deo, to become into uh, the experience of God, to come into how nice can it be? I mean, they have all these stories about God made a paradise. Well, why don't we see it as a paradise? Why do we have to keep finding problems and troubles with it? When in fact, it's quite nice. All we have to do is just sit here and experience how wonderful it is to be alive. About the mundane thoughts. Uh, yeah, I just uh, remembered one thing you said to me, Damarata, and probably might find it helpful. That, um, yeah, Damarata told me when you're having thoughts about the past or the present and they feel like mundane thoughts, then you are probably not paying attention enough because there is some unwholesomeness that you are not feeling. And, and yeah, I remember this in my retreat. And when I feel like it's mundane, then I start playing, paying real close attention. So you can see that there's actually some unwholesomeness in it. Mm-hmm. Really mm, okay. So if we're thinking about something, go think about something else that's better. That this is one of the ways that I talk about it in order for the students to uh, uh, to understand is that any thought that you having could be improved. Those mundane thoughts could be improved. We could spice them up. We could put some sugar on it. You know, there's all kinds of things that we can do with mundane thoughts. And then we could say, well, wait a minute. What happens if I have a thought that can't be improved? The answer to that is, is that, wow, that's pretty amazing. That's something to worth congratulating yourself over. And by congratulating yourself, because you are awake, you are aware, you are looking, rather than having that marvelous, wonderful thought just absentmindedly pass through the mind, now we're paying attention to it. And by actually paying attention to that marvelous thought, it adds to it. And then we can congratulate ourselves for having that um, marvelous thought, which is downright improvement. That in fact, this, this whole quality of congratulating yourself is the aspect of um, the Eightfold Noble Path that is often missed that most practitioners, um, it's, it's almost like the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths is like the beginner's literature. And you have a little test, and so you've got it. And for the whole rest of your college career, you never mentioned it again because we had a little test on that on the day one. To where, in fact, the Buddha talks about it in the sense that he only teaches one thing, the entire teaching with the Buddha it's just one thing, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. And so if we stay with the Eightfold Noble Path, then we're practicing according to the Buddha. If we're practicing according to the Satipatthana, like the Mahasi method, that's not the teaching of the Buddha. 
because it's missing out on the um, the actual way to practice. A lot of people will say, oh, well, I've got to practice Anapanasati or the Satipatthana in the order that it's taught to where, no, we don't practice the Satipatthana according to the way that it's taught. We practice the Satipatthana or the Anapanasati according to the way the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path is taught. So, what does that mean is, is that in, in a particular moment, the first thing that we have is sati, to wake up, to come back to the present moment, and then the big one, to look, to investigate. Now, uh, the word right noble view is misleading, that English language version of it, because we think of the word view as like a viewpoint or a vista or a concept or worldview or something like that is a noun to where here right noble view is a verb like right noble viewing looking investigating not coming to a conclusion which would then be a worldview so if we see something and then we see it again and we think we know it now the idea is i don't have to look at it anymore because I already know what it is. I've, I've reached a conclusion. I know what it is. I built a concept and the darn thing might change. And then our conclusions, where are they? No, we got to go take a fresh look. And so this is what the whole teaching of Anapanasati and the Four Noble Truths is, is to keep looking. To remember to look, to remember to look. And then the third thing is to remember to look and then make a change. This is right noble effort. To wake up, take a look, and to make a change. Those are the first three things on the path. And they run and circle around each other in the sense of skill development. That in fact, if your sati is strong, your effort is easy. But if the sati is weak, then it takes a lot of effort. And so we want to get those three things in harmony with each other so that we can wake up, take a look, and make a change. We want to get the body comfortable. If the body is not comfortable, then the mind's not going to be comfortable and the feelings are not going to be comfortable. So we start with the body, making the body safe and secure and comfortable. And meditation halls don't do that very well. Going to the foot of a tree, going to an empty hut is what the Ruta recommends. Get away from everybody, and yet a retreat is 100 people come together and sit in the same room, everyone there pretending to be in seclusion. And Thank real you, seclusion uh, is better than, uh, than uh, imaginary seclusion or pretend seclusion. And so we start this way. We start by going out into seclusion and then start waking up, taking a look and making a change. Waking up, taking a look and making a change over and over and over again. And when we do that, then that safe, secure and comfortable that we feel in the body and we talk ourselves into safe, secure and comfortable, we begin to feel safe, secure and comfortable. But if the body's safe, secure, and comfortable, when we're thinking about Aunt Susie and the argument we had, we're not going to feel safe, secure, and comfortable. We're going to be feel, let me at her. I'm going to chew her up this time, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and so if we keep practicing these three things, safe, secure, comfortable, through waking up, taking a look, and making the change, then we become successful at that. We begin to then notice that success. And that's where the fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path comes in, the Sama Sankapa, which means that we're basically coming out of our um, attitude. We're coming out of, because attitude actually is very quick. It's almost like the way that a tree is leaning is the direction it will fall. And so the woodcutters, they cut the tree so that it leans in a certain way. It's got its supports cut out on this side 
And so it falls in that direction. When we understand it like that, then we can say, okay, what we're actually doing here by having wholesome thoughts is we're beginning to change our attitude. When we're having unwholesome thoughts, we're just in the same old attitude we've always had, which is the attitude of being a victim. Examples of that would be, oh, meditation is hard. Oh, this is a monkey mind. Oh, I want, I got to get out of here. You know, those are the kind of thoughts that are unwholesome. And so uh, when we recognize that, we can say, wait a minute, I'm going to make a change. This is good enough. I do feel safe. I do feel secure. I do feel satisfied. When we practice that over and over, we begin to get successful at it. And that's where the Samasankapa comes in. Got it. I can do this. I'm a winner now. I am not a victim of meditation. I can do it. That I can do it. That uh, that um, we talk about it in language like get your mojo together. Get your attitude changed. The attitude of I can do this. The attitude of this is really great. What a marvelous life this is. Those are really healthy, wholesome kinds of attitudes to have that then will be the thing that's the source of the thoughts. And so our thoughts become quite wholesome because our attitude is wholesome. And it keeps going that way until one feels like a lion. The Buddha was known as a lion. That's the kind of confidence that he had. And he, he mentions it in this way. It doesn't matter what assembly you go into. Like you can walk into the state legislature. You can walk into the police station. You can walk into the back room of the uh, mosque. You can walk into any place and feel safe and secure and comfortable there. And you can interact with the people there happily. But most Westerners would not walking into the back uh, room of the mosque feel comfortable. That's a foreign place. Okay, so the attitude is is it doesn't matter where I go. I'm in charge. I got it wired. I can handle anything. Well, you see, nobody goes to a meditation retreat with that attitude. I saw a lot of sour faces. So, the Eightfold Noble Path is what we are actually practicing. And when we have safe, when, excuse me, when we have wake up, take a look, investigate, look at what we're doing, then make a change, improve it, tweak it. Instead of saying, uh, Aunt Susie, you're full of crap, we can say, Aunt Susie, I don't need you right now. You're not here. I can do without you just fine. We'll talk later. But right now you're not here. Go away. Okay, come out of the mind. So when we have that ability to begin to control our own mind by making it wholesome, that's an amazing point because everybody that I know feels out of control of their own mind. That we can't control our thoughts. We can't control the way that we feel because we've never practiced taking control. It's like your average, um, uh, let us say, primitive person that's never been around any machinery at all, and he sees somebody drive up in a car. He might have the idea, I want to drive the car, but if you put him in the driver's position, he's lost. He doesn't know what to do. And we all walk into the meditation uh, place like that that is foreign. We don't know what it is. And so we feel insecure. Look how many different places you've been in your life that you've actually felt insecure. And now knowing that actually that's just an old habit of going around feeling insecure. Now we're going to actually practice feeling safe and secure, comfortable, satisfied on top of the world. And then we can walk into any assembly. We can walk into the uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and fit right in. 
we can walk right into the inner chambers of the Pope and all the cardinals. And we're we're good. Fit right in. So that's what we mean by that winner's attitude that we've got this. And we develop that as a skill. How do we develop it as a skill? By being able to change our own mind out of the unwholesome into the wholesome. And then congratulating ourselves. I can change my mind. I can be here now. I don't have to worry about Aunt Susie. I can throw her right out and be happy and comfortable. And so this is the practice that we have. These four things. Wake up. Take a look, make a change, and congratulate yourself. Wake up, make a change, or look at what you're doing. Wake up, look at what you're doing, make a change, and congratulate yourself. These are the four items on the Eightfold Noble Path, and when we do this and get really good at it, something new happens kind of on its own, and that is an integration or a unification, that we become whole. We're no longer arguing with ourselves because, in fact, the arguments that we have are unwholesome thoughts. So when we have wholesome thoughts, the mind becomes unified. Examples of a unified mind is someone who has a unified mind doesn't tell lies. He doesn't need to that that the lie and the truth are two different things. Let's put things together into the truth. Another one would be doubt. Doubt about to practice, doubt about what to do, any of that kind of thing. So we do this, that, this, that, whatever that makes the mind a crowd. When we have the mind unified, there's no doubt. No confusion. We can see things as they are quite clearly. Uh, okay. So the next point would be then once the mind is unified, once the mind is noble, once the mind is whole, then we don't want anything. We're satisfied. We don't want anything. If you are satisfied and you don't want anything, then the likelihood of you go killing somebody to get it is quite remote. So this is where morality comes from. Morality comes from having a mind that's noble, not behaving ourselves forever makes the mind noble. That in fact, your uh, typical goody two-shoes, the ones who, the kids who can follow every rule that the church can, can put down, they're often pretty unhappy. The goody two-shoes uh, are almost petrified to make a mistake. To where when the mind is noble and unified, we don't make the kind of mistakes that harm people, but we make a lot of mistakes that are harmless. We screw up all the time. I mean, I, I screw up every call. But I accept it. Then I'm a screw up. Okay, that's wonderful. I'm a happy screw up. <laughs> so this is the Eightfold Noble Path. The right noble speech comes from having a right noble mind. And the way that we get the right noble mind is by every time an unwholesome thought comes up, we throw it out. So and for we, my seated practice, sorry, um, is it best for me just to focus on that and not even worry about the breath? Is just really just sit and just focus on the, the thoughts coming and going? Or Actually, no, we want to work with the body too. Because the body is the other side, it's kind of like bookends. To where the thoughts are on one side and the and the body is on the other side of the two bookends and then the feelings are the books in between. If you remove one of the other, then the books are going to fall over. You have to bookend it on both both sides. So this is why the Buddha talks about it uh, and the it's actually called Anapanasati. Ana is breathing in and Prana is breathing out. You probably also heard the yogi term about pranayana. Well, pranayana and anapana are exactly the same thing. They're just in two different languages. Right. One's in Sanskrit and the other's in Pali, but it's the same thing. Okay, so anapana means mindfulness. Or anapanasati means mindfulness of breathing in 
and mindfulness of breathing out and putting the mind and the uh, uh, the body together is the way that I was talking about it before. Oh, this this breath is a really good one. Oh, I really like this. And so we intentionally, with our thoughts, relax the body. We intentionally sit down in a place that's safe and secure and comfortable. Getting the body safe, secure, and comfortable, and breathing well. That in fact, one of the major issues about the uh, meditation is people think that they've got an attainment or that they're in deep meditation where in fact, no, they're just doing shallow breathing and the mind has gotten drowsy and is not working very well. And we call that deep meditation. No, we want to be strong. We want to be um, well energized. We want to have a good breath going. We want to actually become vibrantly alive, not a dead piece of wood. Meditation that, that makes us dead wood is not what the Buddha recommended. He recommends a meditation that makes you vibrantly alive on top of the world. Can I ask you a question about that? I think uh, now it finally makes sense for me also. Is what I didn't understand is that step one is the long breathing. And then uh, Buddha Dasa said that you have to do those five tricks that we talked about. The five what? The five tricks, so the running, and then the guarding, and then the nimitta. Okay. And so, uh, and then I asked Ajahn Mehdi, maybe um, you know him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told me that uh, yeah, after you have done step one, then when you're doing step four, then you, you don't have to do the long breathing anymore. Because we're trying to make the breathing as subtle as possible. But not to get the first jhana. The subtleties of breath is when we go into a more peaceful state. Maybe this is the kind of way to understand it is, is that when the mind is not noble, when the mind is full of hindrances, when the mind has dukkha, it's all over the place very, very little or no stability, no peace, no quiet at all. The ordinary, uh, you know, hubbub of the mind, the ordinary hubbub of life. So the first thing that we do is we work with first jhana because that is extraordinarily peaceful compared to the uh, turbulence of the normal mind. And so getting the mind into the wholesome, Getting the body breathing well, getting it energized is a whole lot more peaceful. But it's not finishing the job. That's when we go. But we really need to get good at this particular point. This is the place that a lot of them miss is is that the main work is to get the mind wholesome one after another. The chasing and the following of the breath is also part of that to work with the breathing, to work with the mind in order to get the feelings. Once we get the feelings, feeling really good, then we don't even need the mind anymore. This is when we can now add a new level of stability because we're now in using the mind as almost purely observational and we're not doing the blow-by-blow description anymore. We're just sitting there and watching it And we take one object after another, one by one as they occur, because um, let us say it like this. Imagine that you had um, a set of eggs that were arranged according to the size and placed in the row such that you could only see one egg because all the other eggs are behind it, and it's the biggest egg. When you remove that egg, Now you can see the next egg behind it, which was a little bit smaller. And then you remove that egg and you can see a next egg, which is a little bit smaller than that. So we're using the uh, the analogy of the egg is the same analogy as peacefulness. That when we're unpeaceful, when we're in turbulence, 
then the place to go is to remove that first egg, which is the unwholesome thoughts. Once we remove the unwholesome thoughts, now then uh, and get very good at removing that first egg to get those unwholesome thoughts out so that they don't come back. Doesn't matter if you can uh, uh, see the second egg and the third egg and remove the second and the third egg. You keep putting that first egg back. So we need to actually get rid of that first egg, get rid of those unwholesome thoughts. And now we're going in the direction from no peace at all to a huge amount of peace in the first jhana into even more peacefulness in the second jhana to even more peaceful in the third and down to the fourth jhana when we're now steady and enough and the mind is peaceful enough that you can actually see it work, how it works. Almost like that you need to take the locomotive. If you're going to repair the locomotive of the train, you can't do it while it's going out at 60, 70 miles an hour. You've got to bring that engine to a stop so that you can actually inspect it. And that's what the value of these jhanas are. But being in the fourth jhana momentarily, instantaneously, and then the hindrance is coming back, that's not a very useful fourth jhana. So we need to get the first jhana developed well to be able to get that level of peacefulness, to get that level of uh, quietude so that we only have peace, uh, wholesome thoughts. And then we can remove those, uh, the, those remaining thoughts and we still have an awful lot of unpeacefulness in the feelings left. And so we're going to get those, those very good, joyful feelings that we were able to manufacture. Now we're going to start letting those become more peaceful. And so the first jhana would say, get rid of the unwholesome thoughts. The second jhana would be, notice the excitement, the wow, the wonderfulness, the marvelness, and let that subside into okayness. And then the fourth jhana is going from the okayness of the third jhana down to the actual deep peacefulness. Okay, so those are the that's the way of looking at it is from one state of peace to the second state of peace to the next state of peace. But we need to be able to get the mind corralled into that wholesome. You'll never bring it to a stop if you don't learn to control it and you can't control it without learning to control it to make to make this one distinction to investigate the mind to say, is this thought wholesome? And then make a change. And that's how we began to get the peacefulness. Go ahead, Dan. Uh, isn't that the step seven? Step seven and eight of Anapanasati is noticing the city and the sutta condition the mind. Well, we want to take the sukha out of the mind and put it into the feelings. We actually want to feel the actual feelings of safe and secure. There's a whole lot of difference between the feeling of safe and secure versus the word safe and secure. The word safe and secure is not safe and secure by themselves. It's the feeling of feeling safe and secure because that's part of the relaxation. That's part of the peacefulness that we're looking for. We got to get the body peaceful. We got to get the feelings peaceful. We got to get the mind peaceful. And when all three of them are peaceful, that's very much like the legs of a tripod. So that with a camera on a tripod, it can take much better pictures than it can by having the camera handheld because the hands are, are juggling and, and moving around. And so you don't get good images or you have to take into consideration the shaking of the camera. They can do that, by the way, with digital cameras. With, with In the old film days, you thought you'd had a marvelous photo, and it's not. The camera was moving just at the time when the shutter was open, and you've got blur. Okay. So this is the whole quality, then, of uh, practicing these jhanas, is to get the mind so stable 
that you can see things happening at high speed. And what is happening at high speed? Your attitude. Because the attitude comes first before the thought that your attitude. Um, here's an example of that. We have a big, big boxing match. Let's say 15 rounds. And both of the boxers are very, very fit. And they go after each other and one of them wins and the other one loses. Now they go to uh, at the. At the end of the boxing match, they now go to get a massage. In each in separate rooms and they've got their own masseur and they're both thinking the same thing, perhaps like I got to get out of boxing. Which is a normal thought pattern that happens right after a boxing match. But the guy who won is thinking he's getting out of boxing as a champion. And the other one is getting out of boxing as a loser. That's the attitude. The attitude then determines the quality of our thoughts. And when we get the mind really, really stable, we can begin to see that the thoughts that we had had a had something to, to give it a kick. We can see the way that the mind begins to work. We can see how perception works. We can see how uh, uh, the perceptions that we have are based upon attitudes from the past. And that we can change the way that we think by changing our attitude. And we can see that a bit, but we can see it better in the first jhana, but we can see it a little better in the higher jhanas. But the higher jhanas are not necessary. What is really necessary is clear vision. Keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And we can see quite a lot in the first jhana. We can begin to really see how the mind works in the first jhana by looking and looking and looking. But in the fourth jhana, it'll slap you right in the face. When you get still enough, you can say, Doc, there it is. <laughs> to where in the first John, you say, Yeah, I got, yeah, I got, yeah. I got. And then we put four or five, a dozen photos together and begin to see things. Just like we do with cameras nowadays. That, you know, they make composites that the, um, the big telescopes like the, uh, the Hubble and the uh, James Webb. They need to take a hundred thousand photos of that star before they can really see what it is. But when we get bigger, better telescopes later, we won't have to take so many photos to get a good, clear image. So this is the way that the the, the jhanas are. That uh, the uh, the Hubble telescope is like being in the second jhana because we've gotten completely out of the atmosphere. We can take really good shots. But if you have an awesome thought, then you're not in Ghana. So what is then the value of seeing the mind work? Is it just to see the, the wholesome thoughts? I didn't catch the question. What about the wholesome thoughts? Okay, so you said if you have an unwholesome thought, then you are not in Ghana. So right. what, what is then the value? For example, yeah, also the higher genus uh, in seeing the mind work. Is it just to see the, the wholesome thoughts? OK, here's a way of talking about it also. Unwholesome thoughts are also magical thinking. Unwholesome thoughts are also thoughts about things that are not actually the way they actually are. They're not real. They've got. Um, let us say some specs or some garbage or whatever like that so that we're not seeing well. But when we throw all of the unwholesome thoughts out and we have only wholesome thoughts, basically what that means is that now we have thrown out all the magical thinking. We thought out we've thrown out all of the unreality. And all we have left in that first jhana is reality, but it's still a little shaky. is still just a little bit unshaky. And so we are a little bit shaky. And so the higher jhanas will be able to get rid of that extra shaky, uh, the shakiness that's left. But getting the mind down to the first jhana and being able to stay there 
is what the Buddha is talking about in the sense of enlightenment. Why? Because we've only got wholesome, real things to look at. The unwholesome, the unreal, and the heavy shaking was done with the hindrances. And when we remove the hindrances from the mind, now we can see things clearly. No more shaking, or not so much shaking. We've gotten 90% of the shaking out of it because now... When we're looking and investigating, everything we see is real. Everything we see is wholesome. Everything we see is actual reality. And that's not the case in the second jhana. It's not reality. It's not real. Well, the first jhana is we're in reality, but it's still a bit shaky. But it's real. That's the important thing is, is that when the mind is finished with the hindrances in this moment, what we can see is real. That's why we, in fact, that's why, in fact, we practice coming back to this present moment because the past is not real. The future is not real. Thoughts of Chicago and thoughts of Washington, D.C. are not real because you're not in Washington. That's an unreal thing. Thoughts of being right here, right now, are wholesome because they have to do with what's real. Here we are. So when we understand it like that, this whole thing is is going from an unpeaceful, unreal into more and more peaceful. And then the process more and more real. And we begin to live in a real world. A real world, the, the the actual paradise that Adam and Eve were in before they got unreal. Okay, how did how did Adam and Eve get unreal? By eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and bad. I like this. I don't like that. This is good. This is bad. And to now they're caught in that duality. And so that, but the reality is, is when we stop judging where we are. The reality of the situation and experience it as the real. That's quite marvelous to be in the paradise that you're actually in rather than being uh, in the paradise. But you don't recognize it as paradise because we're the ones who are, gar- are, are bringing the garbage in. The pollution is are in the minds. They're not in the reality. I don't understand it, but I, I, I will just have to play with it. <laughs> yeah, just practice getting real. Just practice yeah. being real. This is real. Yeah. Like I, I know how to get into first jhana well, for a moment, for some time anyway. In the later jhanas, yeah, we'll see about that. Uh, right, so this I, is what we have to keep practicing. Don't try to go for the second or the third or the fourth jhana. Get really, really good at the first jhana. All right, or another way of saying it, right now, don't worry about calculus. You just do arithmetic. You get really, really good at arithmetic, and then equations and algebra will come easy enough. And when you really get algebra down well, then calculus will be okay. But most people are wanting to do calculus and they can't even add. <laughs> when it comes to meditation, I mean, not in mathematics. Most people, they don't, they can't add and they don't even know what calculus is. But for the meditator, the example would be is that, oh, I want these high jhanas, where in fact you can't have them unless you really get the foundation of that first yeah. jhana. So that's what you need to practice, Daniel. That's what you really need to practice. Don't worry about the nematas or getting into the second jhana. What you really need to practice on is getting really happy right here, right now. This is good enough. And you keep maintaining that. This one is good enough and this one's good enough. And start practicing like that till you get the mind in a really, really wholesome state. And guess what? It'll settle down all on its own. Second jhanas will come naturally. You don't have to actually work at it. The ones who work at it are the ones who haven't gotten the first jhana good enough yet. I've just one uh, practical, uh, like technical question about it. 
Okay, so because I read the book, the ABC of Buddhism. So I don't do the trick. I keep running after the book. I don't try anything else. I'm not following you. Say again. Yeah, so I don't do anything else than running after the breath, following the breath. And enjoying the breath. Keep enjoying the breath, okay? Be there with it. Enjoy that. That's that's part of the uh, uh, the practice is gladdening the mind while you're following and enjoying the breath. And keep it long. And uh, keep it long. Keep it long and easy. Long and easy. Jhana. Yes, even in the first jhana. Then, in fact, this, the the breathing for the for, uh, step two of Anapanasati, the short breathing, is only because um, the mind is so agitated that the first uh, step, the long breath, is not there. Uh, so. We do a little bit of the short breathing because while you're doing the short breathing, you can't think of anything else other than the short breathing. So it will focus the mind. So if your mind is so scattered that you can't get it to settle down, do the second breathing, the short breath to settle down the mind. And it also heavily influences um, the body by giving it a lot of air. You really get the body energized that way. So no. you could say then that the uh, the second kind of breathing, the short breath, is optional. And it's um, only needed occasionally. Yeah, Other than that, because the short breath, obviously the short breath is not peaceful. <laughs> Among all things, I mean, <gasps> it's not peaceful. But it will settle the mind. It'll get it focused. So this is a way of understanding as we're going from agitation to less agitation, more peace, first John. And then we start removing the factors like the thoughts, because now the thoughts are the most active thing that we're doing. So let's settle that down to where we're only looking at the feelings and we're not thinking anymore. Now that we've got the second jhana, now the most agitating thing that we've got going is how good I feel. And so we let that go down to the third jhana, which is satisfaction or um, uh, sukha all by itself without that, wow, this is wonderful part of it, which is the second jhana. The third jhana then is more peaceful. And then upeka is the object for the fourth jhana. Of nothing. There's nothing happening. You're so peaceful, so quiet, no stirring. But you can't do that unless you've got a really, really powerful handle on that first jhana. So even in the fourth jhana, you do the long breathing. Well, that's when you can let the breath become subtle because, in fact, most of the air that you need. Is because of all of that spinning of the mind. Once we get the mind not spinning anymore, now we can do with less oxygen. So we do let the mind, the, the body, but we don't lose track of it. We don't let it go into shallow breathing. We continue to watch the breath with these long, easy, satisfying, peaceful breaths. And the weird thing is, like my breathing, it doesn't, like, uh, it doesn't really work for me to do it long. I just take it as gentle as possible, and then for me, the pity and the sutta starts arising. So I wanted to ask, like, do you think I should just do it as it is, like, if I get the pity and sutta going, then I'm doing it correct, or is there a way to? Don't think of it in the sense of, am I doing it correct? Think of it in the sense of how nice this is. How really, wow, this is good. Oh, I'm satisfied with this. This is good enough. We want to get ourselves into that state of this is good enough. That satisfaction. That's the important one. 
That's the important quality of the sukha, is that quality of satisfaction. Why? Well, what is dukkha but the dissatisfaction? When we can get our mind into a state of satisfaction, we've already completed right then and there. We have gotten what the entire teaching of the Buddha is, coming out of our dissatisfaction into a state of satisfaction. So now we're just going to practice that satisfaction coming with the first jhana. And everything is good from then on. That it gets even more peaceful, even more settled. But it's not necessary because by the first jhana, you've already gotten yourself out of your dukkha. Just staying in that first jhana is all the Buddha teaches. So you do just do the cycling as a sort of break from first jhana to have some even more relaxation to recharge yourself to get back into first jhana. Mm-hmm. So first jhana um, is, let us say, the long-term goal in the sense of being able to stay in the first jhana long-term. Right. To where the, the second, third, and fourth jhana are more short-term goals because you're not going to stay in that state. A really good example is, is a guy, I mean, I've, I've seen this on the internet years ago, and, and it seems to always be funny where these two kids are sitting in the car, one of them's a meditation teacher and the other one is a student. And he's talking about, oh, I'm going into second jhana now. Well, you can't say that if you're going into second jhana. And not only that, but if he's, uh, one guy was saying, I, I was driving uh, along and fell into the fourth jhana. And my Dhamma policeman comes up and says, DUI or DUJ, driving while under the influence of jhana, you're busted. You're going to jail. <laughs> you do not belong out on the road driving a car while you're not capable of driving it. You do not do that. So you're well, so riding in the car, going about your daily life, you can do that in first jhana, but not in the second, third, and fourth jhana. Because you can't even think if you're actually in the second jhana, you're not thinking. But you do have sense experience. Right? All you're doing is just experiencing how marvelous you feel. Is there, is there still like bodily sensation? Yes, or? Well, go play with it. Don't ask me. I can only oh. give you a concept. <laughs> Go let yourself feel. How good can you feel? Yeah. But this is what we need to practice, and it's not an intellectual. This is, uh, you know, in universities, especially in certain uh, courses like physics or chemistry, especially chemistry, you have a, a didactic, you have a class, and then you have a lab. Classwork is not going to get it. You do not know how to make a bomb by sitting in class watching the professor draw a bomb on the board. No, you got to go make a bomb and let it blow up in your face. That's how you make a bomb. Is you got to go make the bomb. You got to go practice. You got to go to the lab. You got to go get those chemicals out and mix them together and see what happens. So this is also the difference between listening to the Dhamma as a Dhamma talk versus actually sitting there in your own lab making some happy bombs. Yeah. <laughs> it just has to be experienced. I can only tell you about it in, in words and concepts and maybe yeah. with a great big joyful smile on my face. So uh, what's goes on would be a good lab. Uh, it's an experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, have you made have you made uh, do you have any contact with uh, the Navy of the Okay. I'm interested. I, I, I can kind of tell that uh, meditation is that's the whole point of the Anapanasati is that first jhana of getting that piti sukha going. It's the skill to be developed. 
How good you feel is a skill. Yeah. So, Corey, do you have any questions? We've been going along quite a long. You've been sitting here. Um, uh, just, uh, I guess, just one quick question. What you were saying for myself when I'm practicing about the long, slow breath. So, I, I'm actually um, trying to actually, I'm actually, well, I might be using the wrong word, manipulate my breath to a long, slow breath. Is that correct? Yes. Take control. I know that the words like manipulation sounds like a, a negative word in our society. Uh, but we, it's an okay word to use. That in fact, we're learning to become a boss to our own lives. You see, when we were born as a child, we were born as a victim. Mommy is a boss. And then the teachers are the bosses. Then the government's the boss, and the preachers are the boss, and the cops are the boss, and nobody allows themselves to actually become the boss of their own life. How do we do that? Be becoming a boss of the thoughts, by becoming a boss of your breathing. Take control. You see, if you don't take control of the breathing, then you can't even do a long breath. That the doing of the long breath is in fact taking control of the breathing. But by being able to control the breathing, we're by nature already controlling the mind. Because it's the mind and controlling the mind that controls the breath. So in fact, you could say that we're using the breath to help us learn to control the mind. By giving the mind an object, the breathing, to learn to control. But in the process of controlling the breathing, we're also learning to control the mind. And when we get both of those together, controlling the mind and controlling the body and the breathing, now we can begin to control actually how we feel. You can change the way you feel. Most people don't even recognize that. It's almost a strange thing. I feel good, I feel bad, I feel frustrated, I feel sad, I feel this, I feel that, and the other way, automatically, and I don't have any control over it. That's the way that we live our lives. And so this is almost a major radical teaching of learning to control your own feelings so that you can feel the way that you want to feel. And so we practice that. We practice feeling the way we want to feel. until we can walk around and drive our cars and go to the library and pay our bills and go to the bank and feel good. You even have to sit waiting for the bank president or whatever the issue in the bank and we're just sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. I can feel good. I don't have to be in a state of waiting, wanting something to happen, wondering why that client has got so much trouble and why the banker has to take so long. No, we can just say, hey, I can enjoy this. Waiting, that's something that's a really good time to practice on Anapanasati because otherwise waiting is misery. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. We don't like standing in line. But now we've got a better thing to do than to just sit and be uncomfortable waiting for the bell to ring, waiting for the, um, um, the banker, waiting for the bus. Waiting, waiting, waiting. We spend a lot of time waiting, and all of that time waiting is frustrating. So stop waiting and start enjoying. You got 15 minutes. Let's enjoy this 15 minutes rather than waiting for the bus. Where's the bus? Where's the bus? You know, that's the whole way of, of changing our way of looking at the world. It's let's be in that first genre. Let's really get a kick out of enjoying this present moment, no matter what this present moment is. But we have to practice that because we're unskilled. We've been spending far too much practice time practicing being dissatisfied, waiting. So getting ourselves out of that dissatisfaction and coming into, yeah, this is great. Yeah, the next 15 minutes sitting in the bank, that's okay, I can handle that easy. That's how we practice, is to practice the first genre so that we can have it any and every time that we want it, which is kind of like all the time, 
best practice for being able to be in a good state all the time. But we need to practice first in seclusion. And what do the meditators do? They're not waiting for the bus practicing. They're waiting for the bell to ring for the meditation to be over. <laughs> and so that's the first place to, to practice is I'm not here waiting for the bell to ring. I'm sitting here enjoying myself, and I will until the bell rings. Mm. And a whole lot of meditators would enjoy their 10-day retreat a whole lot more if they would stop waiting for the bell to ring and just enjoy this breath, this moment. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that this has been enough for, for today. Fantastic. Yeah, I think this is great. Corey, I'm glad to see you. You're good. Already I'm thinking you as a good friend. I hope that you can make some friends. We've got uh, a Sangha kind of going on Skype. Plus, right now, we have three dudes right here. We've got Daniel is uh, uh, on this island, and, and uh, uh, excuse me, David's on this island, and Daniel and Laurent are on uh, Kosamui, only 20 miles from here. So we've got yeah. Sangha already. In fact, I've heard from all three of you today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you, uh, no thing. It's South Africa, I think. Me? No, I'm in New Zealand. In New Zealand. New Zealand. Oh, you have a Dutch surname. A Kiwi. Yeah. Okay, guys. Right. We'll see you later. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Enjoy. See you.